In this Campus Bible Study podcast, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran down to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognised him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, Have you had anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Good afternoon, my name is Tim. Thanks for coming in this last week of semester to this last Bible talk uh, and the last chapter of Luke. It's great that we can come and hear about the joy and the confidence we have in the resurrection. Uh, Will you join with me in praying that God would show us what is truly important for us to hear in these verses? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that it speaks into our lives, that it speaks truth that we wouldn't believe otherwise if it weren't for the testimony of your word. Father, thank you that Luke wrote these words to give us assurance of the truth. Please give us assurance of the resurrection as we look at this chapter today. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What do you believe about life after death? Have you given it much consideration lately? Uh, Every year the media seems to do another survey of what people really think. This is one from last year in the UK. The BBC surveyed 2,000 British adults about the afterlife. 46% of the people surveyed believe there is life after death. 46% believe that there isn't. 8% said they didn't know, which probably means that they don't believe. Uh, A similar survey in Australia from 2016 had a similar result. It came up with 45% of Australians believe that there is an afterlife, which means that probably about half of your friends believe that there is some kind of life after death. Maybe you should chat with them, see what they think. Uh, Interestingly, as you look at those different bars, under don't believe, that orange bar, 30% of Christians do not believe in life after death. How is that possible? Is life after death just kind of an optional Christian belief? You may be hardened to know that if you go to active Christians, it drops to 10%, but still, how do 10% of active Christians believe there is no life after death? What's an active Christian? Well, they say you're an active Christian if you turn up to church once a month. Uh, I think Paul or Luke, sorry, would say there's a slightly different view of what it means to be an active Christian. You deny yourself, you take up your cross and you follow Jesus. But those are their stats. Uh, When they zoom in a little bit more on this question of life after death, it centers on the resurrection. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave as the Bible says? 
Well, if you say as the Bible says, and well, maybe not quite as the Bible says, if you combine those first two, 95% of active Christians believe that. That means that 5% of active Christians don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, which would seem a little concerning, wouldn't it? Uh, and what about that other, you know, that 35-odd percent who believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but just not as the Bible says? What else are they trusting? Or what other confidence can you have apart from the eyewitness account and the testimony of the Scriptures? There's another interesting fact that is behind this, that 1% of, non, of people, non-religious people that don't believe in Jesus or anything else, but they believe the word for word, the biblical version of Jesus' resurrection. They believe all the facts, if you like, that we find in the Bible. They just don't believe the explanation. They don't believe the reason. So, what do we do with all of this? And what do we do with Luke 24? Luke, his purpose in recording these facts and the explanation that goes with them is that we would have confidence in not just what happened, but why it happened. That we would know what our expectation is for life beyond the grave. Because let's be honest, the idea that someone would rise from the dead three days after being publicly crucified and buried, it's a little unexpected. It's absurd. If you didn't have a good explanation for it, well, you probably shouldn't believe it. I take it that most of you are fairly rational, wise, intelligent, well-educated people. Why do you believe in the resurrection if it is such a crazy idea? Well, Luke wants to give us all confidence that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, and that has some big implications for us. And he gives us three broad proofs. So, if you're following in your outline, we're at proof one, explaining the empty tomb. Read it with me from verse one of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they were perplexed about this. So picking up the story on Sunday morning, you may remember chapter 23 ended on Friday evening. Jesus has been crucified. He's died. Joseph of Arimathea took his body and laid it in the tomb. And this group of faithful women saw where his body was laid. They rested on the Sabbath. First thing in the morning, it's early in the morning. They've got their spices prepared to honor Jesus' body in his burial. And they go back to the tomb. But there's just one problem. Jesus isn't there. It's not what they expected. Luke says they were perplexed, they were confused, they didn't understand. Where was Jesus? And can you imagine, well, their surprise, their concern? Picture yourself as someone who's just seen a loved one buried on Friday. And then on Sunday morning, first thing in the morning, you go there and as you arrive, the tombstone's a little bit askew, there's a mound of dirt, and as you look in, there's an empty coffin. It's a confronting image, isn't it? And that's what these women were met with. The empty tomb is the first piece of evidence for the resurrection. The body was not there. It doesn't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, but it asks a pretty big question. Where is the body? If you want to disprove the resurrection, you just show up with the body. He's still dead. He didn't rise. But nobody has brought the body forward. So how do you explain the empty tomb? What evidence do you have? What do you trust in? And these women aren't left confused for long because God sends two angelic messengers to provide a divine explanation of what's taken place. They can't find Jesus because they're looking in the wrong place. It's not the wrong tomb. It's wrong because they're looking for a tomb at all. 
pick it up in the middle of verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. This wasn't what the women expected. Jesus is alive. That's why the tomb's empty. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't some zealous disciples taking the body. It wasn't a gardener. No, Jesus isn't there because he's not dead anymore. He's alive. And the angels remind the women of Jesus' words that he spoke to them beforehand. Verse 6. Remember how Jesus told you while he's still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Can you picture those women standing there? They've got their ointments, their spices. They're prepared to anoint Jesus' body. And as the angels say, do you remember these words? They recall. It's a bit of a facepalm moment, isn't it? Of course we should have known. Jesus said so. Why did we waste all this time and money and mourning and sadness thinking he was dead? Just as he said in chapter 9, I must suffer and on the third day rise. That was up in Galilee. Just as he said in chapter 18 as he came into Jericho, I must suffer and on the third day be raised. Well, it's now the third day. The tomb is empty and Jesus has been raised. The sign didn't make sense on its own, but with Jesus' words, it makes perfect sense. So returning, the women go to share this incredible news with the rest of Jesus' disciples. That's the disciples and the 11 chosen apostles you may remember there were 12 after Judas betrayed Jesus, he tragically took his own life. These are the ones that the women go to share this great news with. Have you ever had good news to share? Part of the joy is seeing the, the happiness that it brings to other people. I still remember the look on my mum's face when my wife and I told her that we were expecting our first child. The joy was palpable. And these women must have been something expecting something even greater. Our Lord is risen. He is not dead. How do Jesus' closest followers respond? Verse 11. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It's like they throw a big wet blanket over the, these women. All that excitement and joy just comes crashing down. Do you agree with these disciples? Does this talk of resurrection and people coming out of tombs just sound like an idle tale to you? The response must have been crushing for the women. But Luke doesn't focus on how they felt about it. Rather, he shows that they are the exemplary disciples because of how they have responded to the news. Jesus, uh, Luke highlights their names back in verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the disciples. Uh, these women are women we met earlier in Luke's Gospel. Back in Luke chapter 8, as we read that Jesus was going through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, his chosen apostles, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from, the, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. These women have been following Jesus, they've believed in Jesus since the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. And they've been ministering to Jesus and the disciples. Out of their own pocket, they've provided, they've cared, they've loved. And now these same women are the first to believe in the resurrection. They're honoured with this. They have a privileged place in all of Christian history as those who first trusted that Jesus was the Christ, the one raised from the dead. 
eventually the rest of the disciples will see the truth of their response. But for now, they are a shining light amongst Jesus' followers. And Jesus' focus on these women, it reminds us that women had a central place in Jesus' ministry. All through the time of his public ministry, they were with him, learning from him and ministering to him. In the early church, they had this prominent place. And now churches today, women must continue to have a prominent place as valued members of God's family. Luke then moves us from the tomb with these exceptional disciples to just outside Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus, a new scene with, well, somewhat despondent disciples. Proof number two in your outlines, the Emmaus encounter. We aren't told much about these disciples. I wonder if they're heading home. They might have taken leave without pay, put life on hold, following Jesus into Jerusalem with high hopes. They thought he was the Redeemer, the Christ, the one who was going to transform their lives. But it seems like all their hope and expectation died with Jesus on the cross. It's now been three days. He's still dead. They've given up hope, time to get back on with life. And they head back out to Emmaus. As they walk, they're going over all the things that they have seen and heard. Have a look at their summary from verse 19. They're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. These guys had all of the facts, but they didn't have belief. Is that where you're at? If you maybe come to some Bible talks, maybe read Luke's Gospel with a friend, been in a Bible study, do you know a bunch of stuff about Jesus? from Luke's Gospel. The stuff that he did, the stuff that he taught, what he claimed. And now you've heard that the story is he died and he rose again. But do you not believe yet? Luke's written this chapter that we can move from facts to belief by understanding the explanation. They're not just random occurrences. It's not an accident, but a purposeful act of God for salvation that we may believe. Uh, knowing facts and having faith isn't the same thing, but faith is always grounded in the facts. And Luke wants us to move from facts to faith. The facts clearly show Jesus was a prophet, but what he did and what he taught can't be explained any other way. Though his disciples hoped he was more, a redeemer, the Christ. But his death, well, those hopes weren't realized. He was just a prophet, like Moses, a great one spoke God's words, did God's works, but now is dead without seeing all that Israel was hoping for. But what if death wasn't the end for Jesus? If the report that he was alive was actually true, then Jesus was not just a prophet, but he was a redeemer, the Christ, the Savior. And in his sacrificial death, he wasn't just redeeming Israel, but people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Because redemption, well, it wasn't just from foreign rule. It was from the rule of sin in human hearts. The Romans might have been obvious and visible and scary opponent, but much more dangerous, and perhaps less visible, is the reign of sin in human lives. 
Sin turns us away from the God who made us and loves us, and it tries to fill that up with, well, self-love. But it's a poor and painful substitute. Jesus offers to redeem us. How? Well, a bit like you'd redeem a gift card. You give one thing in exchange for another. Well, in a well, much greater example, we see Jesus gave himself in exchange for you. On the cross, he died taking the punishment that our sin against God deserves. And in his resurrection, he offers us forgiveness and life, eternal life with God that we do not deserve. He takes our judgment. He takes our fear of death. He exchanges himself for us that we can have life and forgiveness. No longer being slaves to sin, but redeemed to live for him who loves us and gave himself for us. But sadly, these despondent disciples, they have too small a picture of redemption. They think Jesus failed by dying on his cross, rather than seeing that that was his victory. But they've made a huge mistake, because as they're thinking these thoughts, Jesus is there, risen, walking alongside them. Verse 15, while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus is right there. He's the answer to their confusion, but they don't recognize him. Why are they kept from recognizing him? Why don't you have a chat with the person next to you? Why were they kept from recognizing Jesus? Any thoughts? If I can get you back together, it's a bit of an interesting question. Why were their eyes kept from recognizing? So it's partly God, partly them. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. Any other thoughts? It's really helpful. I don't know if you had the Bible talk on Tuesday, but that's spot on. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. If he just revealed himself, I think they would have understood what had happened. Jesus is raised from the dead. But by concealing himself, he gets a chance to explain why it took place. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, to see that it was a necessary thing. Not just a random freak occurrence, but it was the fulfillment of God's entire plan of salvation. A plan from before time began. And so Jesus opens their minds before he opens their eyes, and the explanation gives the grounds for believing what they didn't expect to take place. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's taken place in Jesus' death and resurrection was absolutely necessary. God's been building to this moment as the prophets looked forward to it. He's been building it through the entire gospel. It all centers on the cross. Now, you could say that it was unexpected that Jesus rose from the dead. But at the same time, you can also say that it was very much expected because God said it was what must take place. God's word explains the significance of the events that have happened. So Jesus was hidden from those disciples on the road to Emmaus so God could reveal what he has promised in the scriptures. Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures 
And then he opens their eyes to see him. Verse 30. When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Just like the women at the tomb, they recognize Jesus. And as they believe he has been raised from the dead, they can't help but share it. You may remember, as we read through chapter 24, that Emmaus was seven miles away. It's 11 and a half k's. It's a bit like going from New South Wales Uni down to Cogra. It's a slightly modern example. It's a decent walk, isn't it? But as we read through, they said, it's too late, Jesus, for you to continue on your journey. Stay and have dinner. So it's kind of late in the evening. They get out on the road. They can't stop themselves from getting out to tell, well, all the rest of the disciples. And while I reckon it probably took them maybe four hours to get to Emmaus on their way from Jerusalem, they were probably a bit despondent, walking slowly. I reckon they would have beaten the Google estimate on the way back, don't you? They would have been exuberant, excited, skipping, running. They couldn't wait to share this news. Because that's what the resurrection is. It is such good news that you cannot help sharing it. And so, they run off into town, they share this news, and they hear the report that Jesus also appeared to Simon as well. But as we think about this resurrection, we're talking about the fact that they've seen Jesus raised from the dead. Have you noticed that something a little strange is going on as well? Uh, they've understood the scriptures, they're having a meal over in Emmaus, and Jesus is there, he says thanks, he breaks the food, he distributes it, and then poof, he's gone. <laughs> dead people don't come back from life, and, well, people don't just disappear. What's going on with Jesus? Is he a spirit? Was it all just a vision? Well, I take it the broken bread on the table reminded the disciples it was more than a vision. But what is going on with Jesus? Leads us to proof number three in your outlines, experiencing fulfillment. I said earlier about the empty tomb that Jesus' body was never found. That's not exactly true. Jesus' body was found. It just wasn't dead. Verse 36. As the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. You may have heard one suggestion for how you explain the empty tomb is that Jesus was just resuscitated. He, he never really died. Uh, on the cross, he well, was probably a bit weak. Heart rate might have dropped. might not have been able to feel a pulse. But in that cool air of the tomb, as he lay there having a good rest for three days, he revived uh, with the strength to roll the stone away and come back and rejoice with the disciples. It doesn't seem to fit the evidence, does it? When Jesus appears amongst his disciples, they don't go, look, here's the walking dead. They go, it's a spirit amongst us. Jesus doesn't look like he's just dragged himself from the tomb. He hasn't been resuscitated. He's been raised. Which is also how you explain that kind of disappearing and appearing kind of thing that seems to be going on. There is something very clearly continuous with who Jesus is. There's also something a bit different. The disciples, well, they assume first that he must be spiritually raised, if that's the, what's going on with him appearing and disappearing. That's their first assumption, and it continues to be the assumption of many people today. Many Christians, maybe you, believe that Jesus was just raised spiritually. And I think it's an easier belief to hold than the idea that our bodies, no matter how decomposed or rotted they are, will actually physically be raised on that last day. But it just doesn't fit the facts. And it robs God of glory that God is able to raise people, us, bodily. And it just also robs us of hope. What is your expectation? Have a look from verse 38 as Jesus crushes their belief that he's just spiritually been raised. 
Jesus said, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, it's I myself. Touch me and see. The spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you got anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broad fish and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus is clear, touch my body, see, I've got flesh and bones, I'm not a spirit, uh, I'm, a, I'm Jesus, it's me. Uh, look, you can see my hands and my feet where they put those nails that pinned me to the cross. I'm that guy who was up there, the guy that you followed for several years and I have a real body, my body from before. It's a pretty clear proof, isn't it, that he is not a spirit. And then he goes on even further to, well, demonstrate by asking for some food. And it wasn't just that he left Emmaus before he had time to eat dinner properly. He wasn't just hungry. It's another demonstration that he is not like Casper the friendly ghost and all the food falls on the floor. Uh, but he actually eats and it stays within him. He is physically and bodily raised. And that is the hope and the expectation that we have too. That is our joy. And that was the joy of the disciples. But it's interesting to notice verse 41 says they're disbelieving for joy. Do they believe? They disbelieve. Uh, let me demonstrate with this guy. Have you heard of him? His name is Justin Gallagos. Uh, he shot to fame a couple of weeks ago because he was the first professional athlete with cerebral palsy. Uh, he's a cross-country runner in the States. And as he finished a race a couple of weeks ago, he was met by this man, one of Nike's marketing managers, who presented him with a contract to be signed as one of their professional athletes. Justin was rather emotional, as you can see. Uh, as he reflects on that moment, he says these words. He says, for now, I'm more in shock that it's happened. I knew they were thinking about giving me a contract, but with something like that, you don't expect it to happen. And if that's how he felt about getting a contract, how much more the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, they, the disciples are disbelieving for joy. They're in shock that the guy who they had given up all hope on is standing there before him. But their belief is real as his body is real. But does this report of Jesus' resurrection raise concerns for you? He describes his body as having the scars, the marks of the nails. Are you concerned that your body in the resurrection will continue to have scars from this age? Or in Victor's games that's going on at the moment, should those who believe in Christ competing in those games, missing limbs from war, fear that they will well, have bodies missing limbs in the new creation. Is that what we should learn from this? I think as we've gone through the gospel, we've seen that Jesus gives us a glimpse into what the new creation will be like. Part of that is through his words, and part of that is through his miracles. He restores broken bodies as they will be in the new creation. He makes the lame walk, the blind see, deaf ears hear. Even in the garden at his arrest, when his overzealous disciple lops off the high priest servant's ear, Jesus can put body parts back on when they're not there. Uh, we don't need to fear that our bodies will be missing bits in the new creation. Our bodies will be raised, they will be glorious. But what's going on with Jesus having a few scars on his body? Well, they are not imperfections, if you like, but they are his glory. Uh, they are a testimony, firstly to the disciples here, that it truly is him, the one who is nailed to the cross. It's pretty clear testimony. And they are a constant and ongoing reminder of what God did out of love to rescue his people. I take it that's why Revelation talks about Jesus as the lamb who was slain. 
his crucifixion, his sacrifice for us is the glory, it's our hope, it's our confidence that he died that we will not have to. He took the punishment that we will be freed from it. They are his glory, but we don't need to fear that our body will have scars in the new creation. The confidence we have that Jesus was bodily raised, part of it lies in this, what he showed his disciples, but it's also in what he told the disciples. It's like the very first show and tell session. Uh, Jesus says that what happened is in fulfillment to what I told you and what the scriptures said about me. Have a read from verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened his mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus brings together his testimony with that of the scriptures to say that what has taken place is not an accident. It's all a fulfillment of what God said would take place. And he actually shows us that you can't make sense of the Bible without understanding these events. The prophets all looked forward to the cross. The Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus. The Gospels, you can't read them without seeing that their fulfillment and their climax is in Jesus' death and resurrection. A good Bible reader is always asking, how does this point me to the cross? How does this help me understand the cross? How do I understand this in light of the cross? It's what Jesus taught his disciples. That's how we keep reading the scriptures today. And as they see this, the disciples understand that Jesus' death is not a random accident, but an intentional rescue mission. A mission that gives all who trust in the Lord Jesus hope in this life and the life to come. Those who have fallen asleep are not lost, but they will be raised bodily. Do you believe this? Is that your confidence that your death in this life is not the end? It's what all the evidence points us towards. The evidence of the eyewitness account, the evidence of hundreds of years of prophecy. If you believe something different, what are you trusting in? And how is it more valuable and substantial than the evidence that God has provided us? We can put our trust in this because it is the true word of God and the true interpretation of the facts that took place. That is why we can move from the facts to faith because it is not just a random occurrence but what God said was going to happen and what those guys did not expect to see. But as they touched and saw and heard, they believed. First, disbelieving out of joy. Then in verse 52, they worshipped Jesus and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Knowing that Jesus has redeemed us from slavery to sin brings great joy. Knowing that he has been bodily raised from the dead and we too will be one day gives great assurance, doesn't it? Confidence in the resurrection. And knowing that God loved us so much to take on human flesh, to bear the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion against him, that gives us great comfort knowing that we are loved by the God who made us and rules the world. You may recall back in chapter 4, uh, Jesus with the devil. The devil's tempting Jesus. Uh, and one of his temptations is that Jesus would worship him in verse 7 to receive all the kingdoms. But Jesus' response in verse 8 is crystal clear. It says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Only God deserves our worship. And yet, here, uh, as the disciples watch Jesus ascend to his heavenly throne, they worship him. 
they rightly recognize him as their God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the right response to the resurrection. Verse 46 gives a great summary of what's been taking place. Jesus says three things must happen. The Christ must suffer. That happened on the cross. He must be raised on the third day. That took, happen, that took place on Sunday morning. And then repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations. The first two have happened. This one still happened. So at the last point in your outlines, proclaiming the crucified Christ as Lord of all. And these words may be familiar to many of you. They're the start of our campus Bible study mission statement. I want you to test them with me as we work through this chapter. Uh, firstly, who is it that proclaims? Uh, one last chat to the person next to you. It's your last chance to talk to someone this year at Campus Bible Study. Revolutionary. <laughs> Make sure you're first person in to get with the feedback. Or who is it that proclaims? I'd love to hear from you. Okay, who wants to have a chance to feedback on the last discussion question of the year? Okay, CBS. Uh, who is it that proclaims? Everyone who believes that Jesus is raised ends up telling someone else. That's what we've seen. As they believe, they tell. Yeah, any other thoughts? You say the disciples? That's a good answer. Uh, I think initially we want to say that it's the, the disciples, the apostles even, those who are commissioned by Jesus, those who are the witnesses of verse 48. But it's interesting, he speaks to them in verse 44, which is the group of the 11 chosen apostles, and a broader group of disciples, I think even including the women who testified to start with. So you've got this broader commissioning that all who are witnesses of these things will proclaim. Now you and I aren't witnesses, but we've received the message of the witnesses. That's what we have in Luke's Gospel. That we too may proclaim the glory of the resurrection. Uh, it's what people do when they hear of the resurrection. They proclaim it as great news. And it's great news that these Disciples and apostles started sharing from Jerusalem. But the mission, the scope of this vision clearly goes beyond that. It's something that all believers continue to proclaim. We are witnesses, but we proclaim what the witnesses have passed on to us in this gospel account. So if you believe these things, if you've heard these things, will you join us in proclaiming these things that God may be glorified? If you're going to be proclaiming, what do you need to proclaim? Verse 47. It's a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that is proclaimed in Jesus' name. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and life. Uh, it acknowledges that Jesus is king of your life and not yourself. So you no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. You seek to please him and not yourself. You seek to honor him and not just live for your passing pleasures. It changes everything else that you do. Your life has a complete reorientation. And that repentance doesn't earn our forgiveness of sins, but it brings us back to God to receive His gift. As long as we're running from Him going our own way, we don't receive His gift of forgiveness. But as we turn back, He wipes away every sin. Every sin that you know of, every sin that you wish no one else would ever know of, and every sin that you don't even know about yourself, Jesus paid for lavishly, completely, permanently wiped away through his death in your place. It's a glorious promise, isn't it? The forgiveness of sins for all who turn back and receive Jesus as the Christ. And that's why it's proclaimed in his name. The forgiveness comes through his death. Uh, the repentance is acknowledging him as the Lord. He is the one that we proclaim and his death 
and resurrection is the great confidence that we have. If that's what you believe, that's the message that must be proclaimed. And if you don't believe it, will you put your trust in it? How is it proclaimed? What seems surprising in verse 49, Jesus just said, we've got this message to go to the ends of the earth, oh, but stay here in Jerusalem for a bit. Verse 49, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, stay here in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is talking about the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, the Spirit that is poured out at Pentecost in Acts 2 on all Jesus' followers. And it's the Spirit that Jesus continues to pour out on all who put their trust in him. Whatever else you believe about the Holy Spirit, do you see here that He's a Spirit of mission? His purpose in coming is to equip, to clothe, to empower Jesus' disciples to take this life-changing message to all the nations. What is your confidence in proclaiming Jesus, the crucified Christ? Well, it is the strength that the Holy Spirit gives you. The power of God working within you, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is in each one of us equipping us for this mission. If you have the same spirit, we are clothed with God's power to proclaim the gospel. Funky things are happening. That's all right. It's not the work of the spirit. The spirit is on about the message going out to all of the nations. And that is God's work of his spirit in the lives of every believer. If it did it in them, are you expecting God to do it in you too? Are you using the power of the spirit to proclaim who could resist such a calling? Who would want to resist such a calling? So why is it proclaimed? Well, now is the time of proclamation. We proclaim for God's glory. It's a glorious message that He raised His Son from the grave and He promises forgiveness to all who repent and receive His Son. And so we proclaim for your salvation. Have you received it? There was a bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We too will be raised. Those who have fallen asleep, who have died trusting in Jesus, will be raised up to eternal life in Him. But those who continue to reject Jesus will receive His eternal judgment. Now is the time to get right with the King of the next age. We all have bucket lists, things we want to achieve, things that we look forward to. Number one on your bucket list for this life needs to be getting right with Jesus, the Christ. And nothing else you achieve or do or experience in this life counts for anything if you are out of relationship with God on the day that you go to meet Him. And none of us know when that day will be. You've heard the facts. You've heard their God-given explanation that this wasn't a random, accidental, tragic occurrence. It was the glorious fulfillment of prophecies throughout the ages. They touched, they saw, they believed. Will you two join in believing that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he alone is worth trusting your life to, and that he offers you the forgiveness of sins? If you're ready to put your trust in Jesus, to receive his salvation, on this edge of your slip, there's a tick box up the top. It says, I want to follow Jesus for the first time. Can I encourage you to tick that box and hand it in now? We would love to follow up with you. Getting right with Jesus is much more important than your exams that are coming up. I know they are looming. Uh, but do not put this off. Jesus is the Christ, the one who can offer you life beyond the grave. And if you've received that life, will you join us in proclaiming Jesus? It's the mission of all God's people to proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Will you commit your life to doing that? Let's pray. 
Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are Lord of all, the one who raised Jesus from the dead to sit at your right hand. Thank you for the assurance that we have bodily life after this one, as you raised Jesus from the dead, so you'll raise us too. Father, thank you that forgiveness comes through his death in our place. May we trust this and have that great assurance in our lives, and may we proclaim it to a needy world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on iTunes to automatically download our most recent podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Campus Bible Study, you can visit our website, campusbiblestudy.org.